0: was for a while one of the biggest mysteries in Washington. Who was anonymous? We're not talking about the secret writer of a newspaper op-ed revealing embarrassing information about the current president of the United States. No, we're talking about the unknown author of something much bigger and ambitious, a thinly disguised novel about a Southern governor's bid for the presidency whose campaign was constantly on the brink of implosion over stories about his amorous affairs. The novel, a bestseller, was called Primary Colors, and while there was no question it was based on Bill Clinton and his roller coaster ride to the presidency, there were lots of questions about who wrote the book. The author was identified only as anonymous, and for a few months in the summer of 1996, there was an active guessing game about who he or she might actually be, with news organizations running lists of top suspects, along with adamant denials from most of them. One magazine was especially engaged in the game, Newsweek. And at one point, it fingered an obscure former speechwriter for ex-New York governor Mario Cuomo as the culprit. Then it turned out that Newsweek's editors knew exactly who Anonymous was, one of its star political writers, something the Newsweek editors chose not to share with its readers. We'll look back at the hunt for anonymous and what it might tell us about the current search for the author by the same name of that now notorious New York Times op-ed on today's episode of Buried Treasure. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo
1: News. And I'm Dan Clydeman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News.
0: You know, people have really forgotten this uh, a long ago episode uh, from the '90s in the Clinton era. But at the time, it was kind of a really big deal. Who wrote *Primary Colors*? This, you know, very uh, engaging novel. Everybody had written that was clearly about Bill Clinton, focused on his amorous affairs, on uh, uh, even suggested that he might have uh, uh, been the father. Of an illegitimate kid in Arkansas, and it was all covered up by uh, by his campaign. Um, but uh, everybody wanted to know who wrote that book.
1: Yeah, it was the summer of '96, um, and yeah, it was the huge parlor game in Washington among reporters and politicos. Uh, and this big mystery and kind of obsessed everybody, you know, not the most important story in the world, at least the way it started. Um, it then got to be more serious, and particularly for uh, us at New- at Newsweek, uh, because it turned out that Anonymous was Joe Klein, um, one of our columnists and pr- uh, premier uh, political columnists in the country.
0: Um, of course. Uh, and... Um one of the things that sort of made it so fascinating was while this, the novel gave this uh, intimate glimpse of the Clintons and suggested that there was uh, truth to a lot of the stories of, uh, of his philandering, um, Joe Klein was actually uh, somebody quite sympathetic to Bill Clinton and uh, actually actively defended him from uh, many of the allegations he was facing as president.
1: Yeah, that's one of the ironies of, of the whole story. And, and it's uh, you know, important to say that uh, you know, Joe Klein um, was, uh, has been, um, and uh, I haven't seen his byline in a while, but really one of the uh, sort of best observers of American political life, uh, certainly in my lifetime, um, and um, really uh, understood the Clintons. Um, and so this was a kind of a, a sad chapter. And, uh, Mike, we are lucky to have our uh, former colleague and friend, uh, John Alter, uh, join us on on this week's episode. John, who uh, was a uh, a terrific uh, political columnist and reporter at at Newsweek, uh, uh, all the years that we were there, and and preceded me anyway, um, and uh, is now and right
0: in the middle, and right in the middle of the hunt
1: for anonymous. Uh, that is right. <laughs> that is right. So so let's let us let us just start. Um, I, let's, since we were all there at the time, I I had uh, uh, just joined Newsweek like a few months before, before the whole place erupted in journalistic scandal. Um, but let's start with everyone's recollections uh, of how that uh, went down. And then, um, John, you played a particularly uh, important role um, in, uh, in all of this, and particularly why our former editor-in-chief, Maynard Parker, was um, uh, criticized and, uh, and, and questioned pretty aggressively about his conduct um, in this particular uh, matter so, uh, John. Just talk a little bit about about you know the 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 atmosphere at the time, the kind of parlor game that everyone was involved in, um, and how you got involved in the story personally.
2: So uh, this is not one of my finer moments, but um, as as will become
1: clear. Uh
2: And when we get toward the end of the story, it it actually inadvertently um, did me a lot of good in my career, (laughs) as I'll get to. But initially, um, the background is that 1996, when this took place, uh, when Primary Colors came out, was an especially boring presidential election.
1: Clinton-Dole.
2: Bill Bill Clinton was running uh, for re-election, and he was. uh, opposed by Bob Dole, um, who was the Republican nominee, who was actually upset in the New Hampshire primary by by Pat Buchanan, which provided the only, you know, suspense of the whole uh, campaign, and it lasted a relatively short time. So the reason I mention that is that I have this distinct memory of being in New Hampshire at what, you know, might otherwise have been a very exciting debate, and all any of the reporters were talking about was, who wrote Primary Colors? It had just like exploded in the political universe uh, as a as a really fun and compelling whodunit, and par- and and and,
1: and, the, and partly, I mean, the, the, uh, the journalists anyway, they knew that whoever wrote this book uh, was uh, a a talented writer and b someone. Who really knew the Clintons and um, their ride to power um, intimately was able to describe it with great persimilitude um, and uh, and and detail.
2: Right, that's right. So the guessing game started, and and it was you know kind of fun. Um, People had a lot of different uh, ideas of who it might be, and Joe Klein's name came up very early. Um, for the reasons that you described. And I and a lot of other people asked Joe, you know, was it you? And he was adamant in his denials. You know, could not have been more adamant. Categorical. So, categorical. Yeah. Uh, over and,
1: categorical, and over again. Categorical. categorical, categorical. Can, can I, and, I just
0: and, take a, a step back? Ahead, yeah, John, just take a step back. Why did people care?
2: Um, well, I mean, I think part of it is because the campaign wasn't very interesting. So this was going on in the middle of a presidential campaign, and you had a lot of, you know, firepower uh, from political reporters that that didn't have a compelling contest. There was nothing going on on the Democratic side, and the Republican primary was pretty boring, too. So, you but know... What, if,
0: what about the book fast- made this such a... It's such a big topic of discussion. You read the book. I mean, I read it at the time. Yeah. What was it that was in the book that was made this fodder for a Washington guessing game?
2: Well, you remember, this was before Lewinsky. It was after Jennifer Flowers, which took place during the 1992 campaign, but before the Lewinsky scandal. So, you know, reporters knew that Clinton had been a philanderer, but it it had been a while since that had, you know, uh, it had been three years really since the Troopergate stories. So what um, that, you know, of him using Arkansas State troopers to procure women. So uh, at this point, this really very fine uh, Romana Clay, you know, novel that had just a tremendous ring of truth comes out. It was a lot of fun to read. And it got Clinton, you know, it just nailed him as to what he's like. Um, And so um, you you had, you know, reporters who couldn't really write what he was like, what the president was like. Uh, uh, Suddenly they had this novel that did that and it just became a phenomenon. It happens occasionally with books. And then, of course, the fact that it, it, it was the author was unknown is what gave it its real kick. The initial printing was only about 60,000 copies, so it wasn't a blockbuster when it first came out, but then when the guessing game started and went on for weeks, suddenly everybody in the political world got caught up in the fun of just trying to find out.
1: Okay, but you were, you were and you were reporting it out. You were um, actively in the hunt to figure out who Anonymous was. Tell us about that.
2: Right, so what happened was I... I uh, talked to um, Joel Benenson, who was a friend of mine, you know, who later became- The
1: Obama pollster Hillary Clinton, and, and Hillary yeah, Clinton pollster. Hillary
2: Clinton's chief, chief strategist for Much Hillary later, Clinton. and And Joel told me that there was a, a, a speechwriter, um, and I don't even want to uh, dignify him by giving you his name, who-
1: But you uh, published his name, John. For, we published right? it. We, we published his name in Newsweek. Yeah. All right. Okay. Yeah. I'm not even remembering his last
2: name. Luciano. It was Siricuzano. Italian. That was his name. Yeah, right.
1: Luciano Siracuzano.
2: Anyway, right. so so Joe, so uh, Joel Benenson said, I, I think, you know, you might want to take a look at this guy, Luciano Siracuzano. He's a really smart Cuomo speechwriter. Joel at that time was working for Governor Mario Cuomo. And, um, you know, uh, a lot of there was a lot of Cuomo in the novel, um, and it it was at least a little bit plausible. So I called this guy up and he basically claimed to me that it was him without admitting it as such. You know, he was he was coy about it, but he was basically yanking my chain. And (laughs) so I, you know. Like we were having fun and I um, wrote a, a periscope item saying, I didn't write it, you know, it's definitely him, but I said, you know, there's a decent chance. I can't remember exactly how I phrased it, that it's this Cuomo speech writer and uh, you know, he's uh, somebody people should take a look at. So uh, unfortunately for Maynard Parker, Uh, The late editor of Newsweek, who was our boss, he let me into print writing that when he knew, he was one of the only people who knew, that Joe Klein, my colleague at Newsweek at the time, who sat right down the hall from me, was the actual author.
1: So he signed off. I mean, I remember when I was managing editor, you, you put your initials on a story, you signed off on it, and you say you approve of it. Right. So he did that.
2: He did that.
1: Yeah. And then and knowing time, knowing that it was what we were printing was false,
2: right? Right. And then um, Andrew Cuomo called me after the item came out, and he said, "You got the wrong guy. It's it's not Luch Luciano. It's not him." <laughs> and I said, "Okay." And then many months passed, right? And because he, you know, it, it took quite a while for Joe Klein to be busted. Uh, first, it was the Shakespeare scholar who had, uh, at Vassar uh, named Donald Foster, who had um, had uh, made his reputation by identifying Shakespeare as the author um, of uh, of an obscure uh, sonnet uh, that had been unsigned. And he compared um, the language of primary colors to other uh, articles that Joe had written, and he did a very close textual analysis, and he said he thought it was Joe Klein. And then when Joe denied it again, he said, well, I'm not so sure it's Joe Klein. So uh, the thing was again thrown into doubt because of Klein's denials. Then um, this, uh, the Washington Post obtained a bound galley of the book Primary Colors that had markings on it uh corrections that were done in hand and they compared those corrections to other handwritten notes that they obtained uh, that joe klein had written letters to people or whatever and they hired a chicago police detective handwriting expert and they nailed that it was indeed joe klein the handwriting was a perfect match and joe at that point confessed and then uh This was in the summer of
1: 1996.
2: Uh, Really, the thing got really uh, serious at that point for Newsweek, and Maynard Parker almost lost his
1: job. Well, before we get to that, John, just quickly, why do you think uh, Joe didn't come clean sooner? I mean, he was, you know, being asked this question over and over again, and so each time he, he his denials had to be more categorical. And he was just digging himself deeper into this, you know, moral, right, uh, you know, kind of morass. Right. Well,
2: I think that he, um, you know, he made more than $6 million on the book. and um, So the value kept even- going
1: up. As this parlor game went on, the value of the book was, you know, I mean, it was selling.
2: Yes. And in fact, when sales dipped uh, just before the summer of 96, you know, several months after that New Hampshire primary I was talking about, when sales dipped, Anonymous wrote a big story in the New York Times book review about what it felt like to be Anonymous and how his wife treated Anonymous. And Joe was obviously trying to goose sales at that point um uh, which were already very high but they had dipped a little bit and he you know he just wanted to milk it a little more so i think that's why he he kept at it and then you know what happened to joe's was not very happy um aside from the royalties um he ended up having to leave newsweek he was fired from cbs news where he was a part-time commentator uh, uh on this uh, doing election coverage and sometimes on the cbs evening news and he uh he reacted um kind of badly you know he lashed out at people like me and others who had uh, tried to press him on um whether he was uh, anonymous or not and he he acted as if uh somehow it was a um you know, a friendship test, and that if you had had pressed him on whether he was anonymous, that you weren't really his friend. Uh, so sometimes things, uh, you know, it doesn't always bring out the best in people. It should be. It should My, be it,
0: I, I should say, I should say, uh, as somebody who was definitely not a friend of Joe Klein, uh, I remember being quite outraged uh, at the way Newsweek handled this. I even actually gave an on-the-record quote to the Village Voice, uh, uh, criticizing my boss, uh, Maynard Parker, for allowing your item into print. My view was right. a, uh, a news organization cannot knowingly uh, mislead its readers with false information, which Maynard Parker allowed uh, Newsweek to do by publishing your item. Uh, did, did, right. did you ever have a conversation with, with Maynard about this?
2: Yes, uh, it got um, very uh, touchy. I totally agree with you. And Maynard um tried to blame me. Uh Joe tried to blame me. <laughs> I almost left Newsweek. I was so angry about it. And then uh and Maynard himself as uh Rick Smith uh, who was the big boss, the editor in chief and Publisher of Newsweek, as he uh, told me years later, Maynard beca- came within a, a hair's breadth of being fired at that point by by Rick Smith and Catherine Graham, uh, the uh, you know the CEO of the Washington Post Company, uh, the parent company, um, and because for the exact reasons that you described, Mike, is that you know y- your first allegiance is to your reader, not to try to protect. A star columnist who has, you know, uh, published a book under a under uh, a pseudonym.
1: Right, as I so, recall, you know, right. what I as I recall, Maynard's explanation um, was that he felt loyalty to Joe uh, because Joe told him, uh, "Look, I promised my publisher that I would stay anonymous." Um, and then his further rationalization was, "Well, look, this is a." This was sort of trivial. It was an it was an, it was an item about about fiction anyway, um, um, and and you know it took I think it took Maynard a while to sort of come around and really acknowledge uh, what what he had done, and that is also the case with Joe Klein because I I remember Mike first of all I remember being in the in the Washington bureau when you were there and how outraged you were you were fuming about this I seem to remember you faxing things. <laughs> <laughs> to
0: no, you know, no, I, I don't remember that, but I do okay, remember but, going on the record. All right,
1: so and, and speaking. To all right. A, so this is what th- yeah. this is a little piece of color that I remember. Joe Klein's uh, he, he it he did not it took a while for him to sort of apologize for, it and it was very half-hearted um, as I recall it. And what I remember was, and this is just to show you kind of how tone deaf um, he was about it. He knew that the Washington Bureau, at Newsweek, which was a power center. It was important. He was the chief political columnist at the time for Newsweek, um, and he couldn't afford to really alienate everyone. Well, he wasn't... wasn't, All right, not chief. Chief. Okay. As soon as those words came out, I knew I was (laughs) going to hear something from you, Walter. He was a a political columnist at Newsweek. But let me just finish. But he was was the most famous. Okay. All right. But he... Uh, the way he apologized. Good thing and, Howard isn't in on this. Yeah, discussion exactly, Feynman. It, you know. Yeah, yeah. The, the way he apologized, <laughs> yeah. and I'm kind of putting apology in quotes, um, to the Washington bureau is, um, uh, it was, I can't remember. It might have been snail mail or it might have been fax, but basically it was an apology written on Waldorf Astoria letterhead. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> to you know, to all of us. Uh, you know, workers down in the Washington Bureau. People thought there was something tone deaf about uh, how he uh, sent in that uh, that uh, that mea culpa.
2: Well, the reason it was Waldorf Astoria uh, letterhead is that he went to the Waldorf Astoria when the story uh, of his identity broke and he held a press conference and he showed up at the press conference to acknowledge that he was the author wearing uh, Groucho Marx mustache and glasses, and trying to turn the whole thing into a joke. Oh, and nobody, nobody thought it was a joke. And by later that afternoon, he had been fired from CBS News, and his job at Newsweek was hanging by a thread. And I think at that point, he you know, was holed up at the Waldorf, and he realized it would be smart of him to apologize to the Washington Bureau. Mm -hmm. Um, so, but, so look, go go ahead. I was just going to tell you that sort of just on a personal note, um, in the, uh, um, all publicity is good publicity at, at some level. Um, so that summer, um, I looked, uh, pretty bad in the press. I mean, there were stories in the wall street journal and many other publications about how the basically told the story about how I had gotten snookered by this, you know, uh speech writer for Mario Cuomo who led me to believe that he was anonymous. Um and later that summer I was at the Republican convention in um in San Diego and I ran into Andy Lack, who then and now is the president of NBC News. And by that time, I was already working for MSNBC, which had just launched that summer, and I was one of their original employees um, at MSNBC. I saw Andy, and he said, whoa, hey, you've been in the news a lot lately. I said, yeah, I, I guess I have, and he goes... Well, let's sit down and talk about a network contract for you. Oh, yeah. Oh, God.
0: It worked out well, so Klein gets fired and you get promoted. Okay. Um,
1: So let's – So, look, the reason we're
0: having this discussion – Is because of the New York Times anonymous uh, uh, op-ed and the uh, current Washington guessing game about who that is. And, of course, um, uh, just about every senior administration official uh, who... has been uh, queried about this, has denied that they are the author of this uh, uh, column eviscerating the president they work for, Donald Trump. So I guess the question uh, to ask in light of the experience of, of Newsweek and Joe Klein uh, is can we believe these denials?
2: Uh, I don't think we can believe them Um uh, but um, I also think, and, and this is uh, uh, kind of consistent with what you were saying about the, um, uh, the, the primary color story, even when it's at a much higher level, uh, I'm not sure it's uh, worth all of the journalistic firepower that is underway trying to find out who this is, Um, you know, I mean, yes, we're all very curious about who it is, um, but, you know, compared to an awful lot of other stories going on in Washington, I'm not sure it's immensely important who it is. If they find out, and they eventually will, whether it's weeks, months, or years from now, um, you know, and that person maybe has to quit, or if they're already gone, they go on TV for a couple of days, it's not really that huge of a story, you know, compared to say them squelching another uh, EPA regulation that is going to lead to much dirtier air.
1: Okay. Which also All right, this Alter. Week. I I agree with that. Um, I think that's a good uh, point. But um, and and despite your track record, I still want to know your theory on, on who the latest anonymous is. Do you have one? Uh, yes. Uh,
2: um, I do. I think it is not a uh, uh, somebody that anybody has particularly heard of, um, because at one point in the uh, in the piece, uh, anonymous says r- makes reference to another senior administration official who has noticed something about the president's behavior and come out and told them about it. Remember that part yeah, of the piece? Yeah. Yeah which suggests that this person did not get a lot of face time with the president. uh, Right. And, and so, you know, the only firsthand account uh, of something bad that Trump did comes from another uh, source, not the author of the piece. So what this suggests to me is that, you know, the term uh, senior administration official, which, the New York Times uses for dozens and dozens. Yeah, it's a of bit of an elastic,
1: government. elastic term, right?
2: Uh, it it oh, suggests yeah. that this person is more likely an assistant secretary, a deputy secretary, a upper middle level White House aide that you may not have ever heard of, somebody like that, rather than a cabinet secretary. I got to say, if
0: if that's the case, uh, then I think the Times could end up as embarrassed over this as uh, Newsweek was over the Joe Klein episode. First of all, when you say senior administration official in this context, and you're talking about uh, uh, an active resistance within the government uh, to the president of the United States, the stakes are pretty high. And uh, I would think that an assistant secretary or somebody nobody's ever heard of really wouldn't cut it. Uh, And then also there there is that passage in the Times op-ed where it talks about whispers among the cabinet, among the cabinet, about invoking the 25th Amendment. Um, mm-hmm. And so if it's not a cabinet member or somebody who is really has reason to know what members of the cabinet are, are saying uh, as opposed to repeating second or third-hand gossip, uh, then the Times uh, would— it, it would have done a real disservice here by misleading its well, readers. The, um, well,
2: I agree. I agree with you, Mike. But but it's also true that an assistant secretary or a deputy secretary, uh, they are very privy to what goes on uh, in the cabinet. People in the sub-cabinet level, they're not just you know middle-level bureaucrats. And if they're talking about something going on among the cabinet, it might be what they're. You know, they're meeting every day with the cabinet secretary and what they're hearing uh, but from that their just boss leads to in a particular department. All right. all right.
0: Well, that just leads to a whole other line of inquiry. How do you, Assistant Secretary, know that the Cabinet was speaking this way and talking about this? Did somebody, Did your boss, the Cabinet Secretary, tell right. you that? Uh, you know,
1: there's right. There's a whole lot of all questions. Right. But okay. I think there's
0: one thing we can all agree on. Yes. I, this on is this, my line, Isakoff.
1: It's not... No, no. I was going to say that it's if there's not one thing we can all agree on. Former in, it's,
0: Cuomo speechwriter. Yes, writer.
1: that's what I was going to say. It's not Luciano Siracuzano. We can say that with great confidence. You're always stealing <laughs> my lines, Cicco. All right. <laughs> great minds think yeah, alike. That's
0: why I'm on this show. That's why
2: I'm <laughs> on. One thing that Mike, you and I might disagree on is, you know, uh, I, I think that um, it's up to. Uh, the reporter, or in this case, you know, an editor at the New York Times to protect their source. In other words, it's an entirely legitimate kind of journalism for us to go around and try to find out who the source is, or in my case, you know, find out who anonymous was. In other uh, words, we don't have any obligation to protect somebody else's source. Sometimes people think that everybody in the press needs to protect everybody else's sources, and we don't. It's not um, a conspiracy. That's, that's up to the individual yeah. journalist. Yeah. All right. So if I can find well, out... we will... Talk, uh, I might publish it. Come
0: here. Okay. John, we will uh, have, Buried Treasure. Uh, and we'll have uh, you back when the real anonymous is exposed, and we can hold all our uh, comments here up to uh, scrutiny with the
1: actual facts. Love, love to come back. Thanks a lot, guys. All right. Thanks, John. All right. Thanks, John. Thanks to Jonathan Alter for joining us on this episode of Buried Treasure. Don't forget, you can subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And also, tell us what you think. Leave a review. We'll talk to you on Friday.